Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were true crime, history, and the paranormal me. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. We just want to quickly give a shout out to our listeners who have stayed in contact with us. We would love to hear from you. Give us a shout out on Instagram, Facebook, and and we also have a t-shirt contest coming up shortly, right, Haley? Yep. When are you doing that? Whenever I make it. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> so we're like tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, I can try. <laughs> we'll put that on our um, all of our social media, and all you'll have to do is tag three friends to be entered into the contest to get a Hunting History Podcast t-shirt. Made by Haley. Made by Haley. <laughs> Almost like a professional. Almost like a professional. <laughs> um, but since we've been gone so long, we don't want to make anyone wait anymore. This week's case takes us all the way back to 1980. But first, I'm going to take you back to just April of 2020, literally like mid-pandemic. And I was wondering about that. It was like beginning a pandemic. Right. <laughs> yeah, so was, do you want to say that again? No, I'm fine with saying mid-pandemic. I mean, a month into the pandemic. But this is my question. Are we going to refer for the rest of our lives... Are we going to refer to things as pre-pandemic, mid-pandemic, post-pandemic? Is that like a thing now? Like we're always going to Hopefully associate not. it? I think we will. I mean, we do that with the plague, with history books. Pre-plague, <laughs> after plague, it feels like the like, same. You do that with the plague? I was like, what wow. are you talking about? I didn't look through the plague. I feel like I am. Anyways, it was mid-April and I, I had all these hopes of being able to just record a lot because uh, we were at home. You had lost all three of your jobs. Thank and you. <laughs> pointing that out again um so i thought like ideally we were gonna just like have just a shit ton we'd have like episodes up the the butt for like the next year you know what i mean that was my plan and then i know i've mentioned this before i worked for a I, I worked for a company that does trauma scene cleanup and crime scene cleanup and my boss had the foresight to flip and start offering covid sanitation and in april and may when I had started this story, m- my job got so insane where I was working six in the morning until 10 o'clock at night, every night. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of stalled us on the whole podcast thing. But back in April, before it got really bad, I had high hopes and I had found Dorothy's story. And I I was searching on the internet looking for a case that I wanted to dive into and I came across a crime bloggers post about Dorothy Jean Scott and he wrote so passionately about the case that I initially reached out to him just to tell him that I respected his in-depth coverage of the case and we ended up responding back and forth and I'll talk more about him later and I'll have his blog on our episode show notes but after talking to him I really wanted to know more so I reached out to the PIO of the Orange County Sheriff's Office explaining that I had a podcast that idea that I had come across and the case about the case of Dorothy Jane Scott. And I was hoping that they would connect me to the cold case investigator assigned to her case. After several more emails going back and forth, I'm happy to introduce you to our guest today, Bob Taft with the Orange County, California Sheriff's Department Homicide Division. Bob, when we initially first spoke and people should remember you if they've listened for a while, Bob and um, Haley and I did the Carrie Patterson case. Yes, ma'am. Back last year. And 
when you and I first spoke, you had said that you needed to get approval to do a podcast because the Orange County Sheriff had never done a podcast before and that it would, I don't know how to say, grease the wheels if we did a case that you didn't have any kind of smoking gun on file, right? Yes. Is that a fair way to... Well, I think what it was is that Dorothy's case is kind of convoluted. Terry's it's huge. case is a little more succinct. So to to get one out of the way, I would opt to choose a simpler case than one that's a little bit more complicated. Like Dorothy. Yes. And, and Carrie's case was close to your heart. Like it was one that you felt really strongly about that yes, you spent absolutely. a lot of time on. Well, I, I feel strongly about all of them. Back to today's case. On May 28, 1980, 32-year-old secretary Dorothy Jean Scott dropped her young son, Sean. His actual name is Shanti. Yes. That's his real name. Correct. Which means peace and love in... Oh, I know that. I think he told us. He goes by Sean now, so I'm going to refer to him as Sean because that's what he goes by. You'll hear on other podcasts people referring to him as Shanti, and that is actually his legal name. On that night in May 20th, 1980... Dorothy Jane Scott dropped her young son, Sean, off at her parents' house in Anaheim, California, and went to a work meeting. At the time, Dorothy, a single mother to Sean, lived with her son and her aunt in the city of Stanton. She worked at a, as a secretary at two retail stores, one swinger's psych shop and another store owned by the same man called Custom John's. I, I want to talk a little bit about the shops because when people describe Dorothy, they always describe her... You've heard it over and over again, like bookworm, really quiet, yes, very Christian. And I think it belies like people saying all those things about her. She clearly had another side. She worked at Swinger's Psych Shop, which was really, really a hippie. Correct. It was very, very like weed paraphernalia. At the time, yes. But right. the other thing too is that she didn't she didn't delve into Christianity until later in life. Right, after she so, had started working there. Correct. And she started working there, correct me if I'm wrong, did her dad own Custom John's originally or he owned Swinger's Psych Shop? Uh, I know he owned one of the two. I can't remember which I one. I would think it would be weird head. that he owned Swinger, I mean, John, Custom John's, because I wasn't Custom John's named after John Kaikola, the owner? Yes. So he probably owned a Swinger's Psych Shop. Yes. Which he and sold then John to John. bought it, correct. And Initially, Dorothy probably started working at one of them because her dad owned it, yes. I'm assuming. Okay. So, but it's just such a, a conflict to me when people describe her as being, like someone wrote, I know the crime blogger wrote it in his blog that he had read somewhere that someone described her as as dull as a library book or something like that. And that wasn't her true personality. No, it was not. Because if you go through and read some of the interviews of, of the people that the investigators talked to as part of the original investigation, they said that uh, she had moved here. She had lived in Los Angeles County. She was into music. She started a, a female music group and, you know, everything that kind of came with that lifestyle at the time. And she was, yeah, fully immersed in like the hippie lifestyle. She yes, wasn't, absolutely. She wasn't the, the librarian or the bookworm that some people described her as, but I always kind of feel like maybe her work personality was different than her personal personality. Well, and the other thing too, and is maybe I, I extrapolate a little of my own personal experience into it, but you know, once you kind of settle down, have kids, you know, have to be a responsible adult, maybe your, personality your changes. lifestyle changes. Absolutely. Right. But I don't think I don't think it's accurate that people describe her as being boring or quiet or No, I don't think so either. The thing about like um Swinger Psych Shop, they sold lava lamps like the velvet 
posters, anything solid, like 70s style. I had heard of Custom John's shop before. It was an area head shop, which now it's sold like bongs and in, is, is there such a thing as roach clips anymore? Like, is that a thing? I don't think so. Like that was definitely a big thing in the 80s. Yes. With like the feathers hanging off of it <laughs> and stuff. And like now you can go into any corner tobacco shop and buy a bong. But back then, Custom John's was like the only place that you could go publicly in Orange County and get maybe the swap meet. But Custom John's was like the only place in Orange County you could go to buy like paraphernalia for Well, I don't know if it was the only place, but I'm sure it was the most famous place for sure. Limited ones, yes. And Dorothy did not work at the front of the store. She worked at the back of the store, and I think that's significant to know. She yes, was a secretary. She was the bookkeeper. She didn't interact like her daily job was not interacting with the public. Correct. During this meeting that Dorothy had gone to, um, as a combination meeting between both stores, right? Swinger Swingers Psych Shop and Custom John's, it was like an employee meeting. It was an employee meeting, yes. During the meeting, she had noticed that her coworker, a man named Conrad Boston. Do we know how old he was at that time? Mm, probably early 20s, I'm guessing. Okay. He, she knows that he was uncomfortable and ill. And a lot of the stories describe it as her having to convince him to go to the doctors because she noticed a red line going from like a bite mark up his arm. Yes. I don't know if he was like, someone please take me, or I don't think that's significant I, anyways. Yeah, I don't, I don't know obviously what transpired, but at some point they convinced him to go to the hospital to, go to the hospital. Get, take care, get take care of after the meeting, co- another coworker named Pam Head, and she, I have not spoken to her yet. She told you she would speak to me. Yes, I talked to her once on the phone. She called me back. Yeah, and she said that she would speak to me, and then she gave the crime blogger, he spoke to her, and she gave him her phone number and said that she would speak to me, but I called her, and she's never, ever called me back. I wanted to talk to her because she's a her and Conrad are the last people to have seen her alive that yes. night. Pam had, so going to the hospital, it was, Dorothy was driving Conrad to the hospital. Pam had had offered to go with them. The story goes that Dorothy drove to her house, her parents' house first. Yes. To, is that, is that accurate that she really went in the house and changed scarves? Is that significant or is that accurate? It's a big part of the story. People talk about it all the time. Yes. And, And I, and I realized that one of the key things was the change of color, perhaps, of, of her the scarf. scarf. Um, I would assume that she went in to to talk to or to check on Sean at the time. And tell her parents that she was going to be late. she was going to be late. And that uh, initially she was going to take Sean with her to the hospital. And the parents said, no, just leave him here. So then she, Pam, and Conrad all went to the hospital. Together. I didn't know that. Now, how different could this have turned out if she would have had her little boy with her? That's funny. I, I, never I guess knew anything that. you know, anything is possible. Uh, I guess it depends on whether she would have taken Sean with her when she went to go get the car. If she would have left Sean with Pam and Conrad, I would assume that she probably would have taken her when she went out to pick up the car. She would have taken him with her because, like, a four-year-old would have said, "No, mom, I'm going with you." Like a four-year-old wouldn't have stayed. He would have been bored for one thing. They were sitting in the waiting room for hours. True, and then just me thinking out loud. They probably would have had to put a car seat in the car right. and all that. How so. different this story could have, this could have been a non-story if Sean had been with her that night. I never knew that. I don't think I, in this whole time, I never knew. So anyway, she said, the, the scarf comes in to play a lot. Is that part of the story? Did she really change color scarf? I don't, don't know specifically. 
we don't know nobody's, if that really did happen. Nobody's ever specifically said, yes, she changed from color A to color Her A. mom said it in a newspaper article. I know that. And people surmise that, oh, she wouldn't have been wearing a scarf in, in May in California. But I don't think people are taking into consideration it wasn't it wasn't a woolen scarf. It wasn't a winter scarf. It was probably Correct. just something she like had tied silk, around her neck. Like a yeah. silk scarf. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. the reason why it's so relevant to this story is because whoever the person was that kept calling after her disappearance Mentioned made it. mention of a particular color scarf. And that's why it became an issue. That's why it became an issue. So, and the, and the other thing is that people talk a lot about at the hospital they went to. And they went to UCI Medical Center in Orange. I'm very, very familiar with UCI Medical Center. I myself worked right across the street from there and it was not the closest hospital for sure. From Dorothy's house, there would have been Martin Luther King hospital in Anaheim. Um, I feel like St. Joseph's would have been easier and faster to get to. Uh, there was Anaheim medical center, but UCI at the time. And I think still was considered a teaching hospital Correct. and that the, anybody who didn't have money or insurance went to UCI Medical Center. That's why they ended up there that night, for sure. But it would not have been, if anybody was in the meeting or overheard that Khan was going to the hospital, I don't think they would have assumed it would have been UCI. I think they would have, do you know what I'm saying? Like, later on in the story, this is going to be significant. To about, have the foresight, you mean that they were going to UCI? Yes. If anybody overheard that they were taking Conrad to the hospital, they would have not have just assumed it was UCI, I don't think. That makes sense. Because it wasn't yes. the nearest hospital. Right. So... For someone to know where she was at UCI, it had to have been someone that knew that they were going there. That that hospital was, would not have been the assumption, is my point. Right. Because it was not the closest hospital, for sure. Do you do you believe that the, the scarf was significant? I'd have to extrapolate a little bit of it because, you know, unfortunately with these cold cases, you're trying to recreate events from 30, 40 years ago. And... And you have even, questions that are not answered. Right. And even reading through the available information on this case, you have information that's contained in a police report. You have information that's contained in uh, media reports, newspaper articles, and you don't know which is the true information. Okay. And depending on the time frame when people talk, it could have been, you know, I remember this at point A, but then when they talk to a different agency, even though the same person says the same thing, they may change it up a little bit or vary things. And so. the file that you have is 41 years old. So there's information from 41 years ago and then information from 36 years ago and then when, when her body was found. And then Correct. there's information from that the first cold case investigator that took it on at 10 years in 1990 would have had information. So, yeah, I can see how the information... I just feel like everybody made such... A big deal about the scarf, and I'm just so curious. If well, it truly like I said, was. there was a lot of speculation over the years that the individual that was calling the Scott household was the person responsible for her abduction and her murder. And just thinking on a trip you know, on a true murder investigation, there are certain elements that only the person responsible for the crime would know. So one of the things I think they focused on was she was wearing a particular color scarf and. If she went home and changed that, then only the killer and the two people that were there with her that night and maybe her parents would know whatever color scarf that was. So if he said, hey, the, the scarf is, is red not black, is red or black or blue or whatever, then you know, oh, only a couple people know that information, so that would lead credibility to his story. Because she changed it. Correct. Because, because she changed it. Because in, in Between way, the, work meeting the work meeting and going to the hospital. Right. Okay. 
So when they got to the hospital, the three of them waited in the emergency room for Conrad to be called back to yes. be examined. I forgot the word examined for a minute there. Pam Head has stated for the last 41 years, and you're going to have to confirm this for me because, again, she hasn't talked to me, that neither she nor Dorothy left the waiting room at all, that Conrad got called back, but her, Pam and Dorothy stayed in the waiting room. Yes. The entire time. They never left. They never made a phone call. They never went to the bathroom before he came out. I'm Correct. I'm talking you know, just before. Yes. And then when he came out, it was determined that he had a black widow spider bite. Some type of spider bite, yes. Okay. And when he was released from basically the back of the hospital, the doctors had seen him and gave him a prescription. He came out. He said he had a prescription to fill. Yes. Or Dorothy said, you guys go get the prescription. I'll go get the car and I'll pick you up at the front. Correct. At front doors. When they, Pam said that when she said that before she went to the, the car, she did go to the bathroom. Yes. And then left. Did he see, did she see her go to the bathroom and leave the bathroom and go to her car? In my most recent conversations with Pam, she did not say that. And I know that there's, there's information out there that suggests that, or uh, that Dorothy may have made a phone call right. at some point, uh, but that has never been confirmed. And that, okay, so we have to go back to 1980. There's no such thing as pay phones now. But at the time, like an alcove with bathrooms, that's where the payphone would have been. Could have been, yes. She could have, if they could, if she was not in Pam and Conrad's vision, she could have made a phone call. Absolutely, she, she could have. We know yeah. now she did not call her parents, though. Correct. Okay. And technically, this is the other thing that has always kind of been a burr for me, is that if for some reason she did call someone when she went to the bathroom, whoever it was would not have had time to get to the hospital between that time and picking up a prescription it's yes. unlikely anyways. Let's say it's unlikely. I would say it's unlikely because, like you said, there was no such thing as cell phones. So right. whoever, so whoever she was, would have had he to call calling someone in had the to house. be a landline. Yeah. Yes. So they would not. So the call thing is, is irrelevant anyways if she did, did or didn't make a phone call. I wouldn't say ir- irrelevant, but it, it wouldn't have the same relevancy then as, it, as something like that would now. Right, because someone could have been across the street and you couldn't call them on their cell phone now. Yes, absolutely. But back then she would have been calling someone's home or work or something. Yes. So she went to get the car and Pam and Conrad filled the prescription, walked out front and waited for her. Yeah. Now this is a question I've always had. So they were waiting for her for a few minutes and then realized that she hadn't come. She was not in the parking garage. She was in that parking lot, which doesn't technically exist anymore now. It's it, the, it's reconfigured now, yes. But from the way that I remember it, she would have walked straight down that walkway and the parking lot would have been basically right in front of her. Yes. And it would have been a larger parking lot than... than a it large, would have been like a little tiny one. It would have been a larger It was a large lot. open parking lot from my understanding. They started walking towards the parking lot and... As they approached the parking lot, they saw Dorothy's car coming directly at them. What they suspected was Dorothy's car. What they believed was her car. Yes. We still to this day don't know if it was her car. We do not. And then there's also varying accounts of whether there was one car or two cars. Or two cars. There were some accounts where the car was coming towards them. They believed it was Dorothy's car. The headlights blinded them so they couldn't see who was driving. Yes. The car drove directly towards them, and right behind them was a car without their headlights on, was one of the stories. And both cars pulled out of the driveway and made an immediate right, which would be going north on the city drive. Well, they would have made a right onto the entrance road to the hospital and then out to city drive and right on city drive. Or actually, I think it was south on city drive. South would have been towards the 22. Correct. If they made a right, it would have been north on the city drive. Yes. 
So they could have made another right onto Chapman and took Chapman East, or they could have continued on. I mean, they could or have I'm trying really to think, anything. Was the, I don't know if the five freeway was around then. The the, there was not the five freeway was right there as well. It is now. It is now. It Back then, there. it was closer to Disneyland. It was a little further down the street. But the opportunities in that area, they could have made a left on Chapman. They could have made a right on Chapman. They could have stayed on the city drive to where it turns into like the Disneyland area. Mm -hmm. They could have got it on the five freeway. It's definitely a possibility. There's so many options. Yes. But I guess the bottom line is, We've always kind of assumption, and I think other podcasters and other crime bloggers have all assumed that that was Dorothy's car that they saw. But you spoke to Pam, and you spoke to Conrad, right? You spoke to both of them? I did. Do both of them believe 100% that that was her car that night, or do they question it now and they didn't question it then? They did not question it then. Uh, They both believed that it was Dorothy's car, obviously looking at it 40 years later. They said, yes, we believed it was Dorothy's car at the time. And then, obviously, Dorothy's car was not, nobody found it at the hospital. Right, so it wasn't so, there. But it could have disappeared while they were still inside the hospital, technically. Because they did go back in to track down somebody to call uh, after she didn't return. Right. So, you know. so we still we don't know for a fact that that was her car that left in a hurry that night. Uh, we don't know for a fact, but uh, it seems reasonable that. So could was her car. they not see the open parking lot from where they're at to see, like, well, if her car is still there or not? Like, I would have, if I'm like, is that her car? She doesn't come back. I would have walked to the parking lot to see if she was in the parking lot. They, I don't think they questioned it was her car. I think they, they definitely just knew, knew at, it was her at car. At the time, yes. Okay. And, and I want to say, reviewing those reports, they did try, after the, the car left, and they thought that it was possibly her car, they walked to the parking lot where to she verify parked, it was her and car. her car was not there. Which hmm further least to suggest that it was her car that was seen leaving. Right. And this is my question too. And you've been doing this how many years? Have you been an investigator? Since, two, since an investigator? I've been an investigator since 2008. I can't do working. the math. That was a long, it's been a while. Yeah. Because well, okay. 1990 was just 10 years ago in my head. 21 13. years. 20 years? No. Oh my God. <laughs> 13. Sorry, Bob. See, we cannot years. do math. We're literally no. incapable of mathing. But the funny thing is, to me, 1990 was 10 years ago. Like, yes. I'm sorry. That's so you've been doing this for, you know, a minute. Because 2008 was yeah, like yesterday. I've been working in cold cases for five years. Okay. So, in your experience, I don't know why we got so stuck on the math thing. Do people, now these are two separate people, and you've spoken to both of these people in the last year? Yes. One, Pam, relatively recently. Uh, I actually talked to both of them on the same day. Okay. So, is it typical for people to maintain the same story for 41 years and two separate people and have they maintained the same story for 41 years uh they've both maintained the same story yes it has been my experience that if people change their story over time a significant amount then obviously one of the two was a fraudulent or fictitious but both of them have both of them have been consistent have they maintained a friendship past this point? They have not communicated since, I want to say, I think Conrad left the area first. Uh, but in talking with them, they had not spoken to each other in years. So their their statements about what happened that night are, are on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most solid. There's is like 11. Yes. So. Yeah, There's there were no inconsistencies. Between the, either one of them. Did either, when you spoke to either of them, did you ask them? If they ever had any theories, I mean, I'm assuming they were the last two to see her alive, that they would have had theories about what happened to her. 
Well, I think, I'll, uh, you know, everybody has theories. Whether they were substantiated theories or unsubstantiated theories, uh, they couldn't say. But uh, I think consistently there was a belief that it, it had to be somebody that knew her. Knew her. That's Well, that's a general consensus, anybody. I mean, from any armchair detective all the way to you, is that it was someone that knew her. Correct. But then you have the other side of the coin where, you know, like we suggested, she may have made a phone call right. to somebody. Well, that person would have would not have been in the general area. So who's to say it couldn't have just been a random abduction? Really? I've never thought of it that I, way. Yeah, I don't know why everyone's stuck on the fact that it's someone that she knows. Well, because, well, then we're going to get into that. Even Okay, so to, to go back to that night, Dorothy and Conrad waited two to three hours. They assumed, okay, so I've read over and over again. They assumed that Dorothy got some kind of no- news from a phone call, like, and they're kind of thinking that she called home. That something was wrong with Sean and or her dad or her mom. Something. And yes. she rushed home and left them there. Yes. So they assumed in a world before cell phones mm-hmm. and texting that if they waited there, she would come back for them. That she just rushed off because of an emergency. Yes. And she would come back for them. Yes. But they waited a solid two hours, right? Roughly, yes. Does would that, they not have had Dorothy's parents' phone number? At the t- okay, so that's the other contention that comes up a lot of podcasts. Is like, how would they have her phone? Because they, eventually they did call her parents okay. after two hours, right? Uh, and that was at the request of UCI police. So they call, So they contacted the police first, and UCI said, call her parents and Correct. find out. So her parents, back in 1980, every phone book, every, especially in a, a place like a hospital where it's kept up and maintained, it would have had a hanging phone book. Would have literally had a phone book hanging on, so they could have gotten and the it, number. Her parents would one hundred percent have been listed in the phone book. Like even if for some reason Pam and Conrad did not have her parents' phone number, which they might have, everybody carried an address book in your purse. Like right. Pam probably would have an address book. It would have been in the white pages. They would have just had to look up because Scott that's... and find the dad's name, and and the dad was familiar. The dad had owned one of the stores, and even after he owned the stores, he maintained. Um, he maintains the buildings. He he did, yeah, and I don't remember if Conrad or Pam were working there at the time. Her father owned the business as well. I don't. I don't if remember. they had, but but they would have still known him probably because he did all the maintenance at the buildings, right? And again, the phone would. Have, it doesn't even matter. People are questioning like, how did they have her parents' phone number? It would have been in the phone book. There's just no doubt in my mind it would have been I in the phone book. I question more why it took them if they could easily contact her parents and why the they thought didn't process do that. was that something could have happened. I would have been like, why did she just rush off like that? Maybe I would have waited 30 minutes. But then after that, I've been like, that was really weird. Let's find out something happened. Right. But you also grew up in a different time period where people are just getting abducted. Yes. And you're listening to two crime (laughs) podcasts. Yeah. So like you're more paranoid and you wouldn't have waited that long back then. And let's be honest, these were stoners. I mean, they probably were like, just chill. Like, dude, where'd she go? You know, thinking she's going to come right back. Maybe. Or and they're thinking, like, what are we going to do now? How are we going to get home? I'm hungry. Let's go grab something to eat from the cafeteria or yeah. whatever. But and, they pretty much like I said, they, in reviewing the reports, they actually contacted the, the UCI, UCI police. police department prior to. And then in the conversations with the officers there, they suggested, hey, call Dorothy's parents. And Jacob answered the phone and said, no, Dorothy hadn't come home. Correct. Did it immediately turn into a missing persons investigation oh, no. right then? Because she no. was an adult. Correct. So no one could actually file. How did Conrad and, and, and Pam get home that night? John came and picked him up. 
John Kaikola, yes. the owner of the building, came and picked them up. Because um, so much new and information. John You're literally were roommates. And how, how long after, when did John get there to pick them up? Uh, I want to say probably it, two to three hours. It had to be a minimum of three hours because they yeah. waited almost two and then they had to talk to the police and then they called Dorothy's parents. So minimum three hours probably after Dorothy disappeared. Roughly, yes. Yeah. And then other information is that, that no one knows is that Conrad was roommates with John Kaikola, who is owner of the, both the stores. Correct. And John Kaikola, Conrad originally had wanted to go to the hospital and asked John to take him, right? Yes. And then, that's why I'm saying, like, everyone, and, and again, I don't know if it's significant, everyone talks about how sweet and kind Dorothy was, which I'm not denying that, but they portray it that she had to convince Conrad to go, but Conrad had already asked someone to take him to the hospital. Correct. And I think probably what it was is that she convinced him to go right then. Instead of waiting until yes. someone could take him. Okay. Well, then that explains why people make such a big deal about that. So initially when 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 Pam and Conrad contacted the UCI, now UCI is called a campus. It's not called like a hospital compound or whatever. It's UCI Medical Campus because it's a teaching hospital. What? So it's still referred to as a campus. UCI, I, I've always known it as UCI Medical Center. And it's... But it is a teaching hospital. It is a teaching hospital. It's referred to as a campus like on all their, like their marketing material or whatever. And they would automatically, a lot of people don't think about this, they would automatically have campus police. And that was a UCI medical center police that they initially spoke to. It wasn't a city police. It was like the police for UCI. Correct. Yes. And they had suggested that they called Dorothy's family and found that Dorothy had not returned home. So they did not take the initial missing persons report, or they did? They didn't. Initially, they did not. And so... What happened that night? They just went home, and then Jacob and Vera are... And Jacob is Dorothy's dad, and Vera is her mom. So they have her son, Sean, and they're left on their own devices. Like, our daughter never showed up, and now they're alerted at 3 a.m. that their daughter went missing. By Pam and Conrad. Conrad. Yeah. If you or anyone you know witnessed anything that May night in 1980, please contact the Orange County Sheriff at 714 714- Six four seven seven zero five five, and come back next week for our part three in our cold case of Dorothy Jane Scott. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode, links to our Patreon page, and all of our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. Remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.